Hi, I'm Jeremy Hall, and you're listening to the Kingdom Ethics Podcast, a production of Mercer University's Center for Theology and Public Life. With me today, as always, is the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics, Dr. David P. Gushy. How are you today, David? I'm good, Jeremy. I I'm, I'm, hope you are well. I understand you are uh, single-fathering it this weekend. Yes, my flight attendant wife is away, and I'm... Uh, I've been saying a lot of prayers for for myself and uh, for uh, those who single parenting is is their reality. It's it's a lot. It is a lot. Is. And my baby does not sleep. She just doesn't. <laughs> she does not take naps and she does not sleep at night. Um, I don't know how she does it. If I could emulate that, I would have so many books done by now. It's incredible the, <laughs> the amount of energy she she pulls in. Uh, so this is the beginning of season three, and, and what we're we're doing, dear listeners, is this season we're going to be working through and walking through some of the key issues that David has tackled throughout his career. We're about thirty years in uh, uh, to the academic work of David Geshe. Is that right? That's right. Uh, I. I um got my PhD in 93, started teaching, I think the, the first students had me inflicted on them in 1990, so <laughs> 30 years. So. <laughs> I, the, this wasn't on, in my notes, but we should put it somewhere along that we, we should do a, uh, like a teaching pedagogy episode. Like what, what, what was it like to be a 1995 student versus a 2020 uh, student. I think yeah. that would be fun, at least for me and other people that yeah, have sat in your classrooms. For sure, we could do that. Yeah, so this season, we're sort of doing Gushy's Greatest Hits. Going to walk through and, and talk through uh, what, what you've done, what you've thought about, and maybe uh, reviewing in this intellectual journey some of the places where you've shifted and changed and some of the ways that that you developed this thought. So I'm really interested in these conversations and both knowing what you think, I want your perspective, but also as someone who's trying to do some of this work, and many of our listeners are like that as well. And in fact, I think all of us should be ethicists by now, right? Um, we want to know yep. how to do this work too. Um, so right now we're sitting two weeks, I'm going to get this episode uh, we're recording on the 23rd. I'm going to try to have this out as soon as possible because we have an election in, Lord help us, two weeks. Last night there was a debate. Did you watch that debate? Uh, no, I can't bear it anymore, so I didn't. I always I look at the highlights afterwards to see if the Republic is still standing, and apparently we are. So, well, yep. so far. I mean, it's, it's 9.30 in the morning, so <laughs> give it till noon. It was, right. I, I watched it. I don't. I was excited for it. I don't know why. I, the first one was a train wreck. The competing town halls were silly. I thought that was so dumb. Um, and now we have an attempt to rein it in and have a real debate. And I don't know what I was hoping for, but I didn't get it. So there's there's a lot of political tension, a lot of political questions floating around like now, right now. So we're going to talk about politics a little bit. Um, and so if I, I'm dealing in it with the political climate from the position 
of a pastor, and I, I feel like every week I have to address it. And the people in my congregation think politically differently. We have a very purple church, which is a blessing for our congregation, but also a constant struggle to make sure no one feels too called out, even when you're calling calling out a system or a political action you, you don't want someone to feel so attacked that they pull away and don't hear, things like that. But there's always this tension about how much Christian we want in our politics. And right now, when you think about churches in the state of Georgia, your mind usually goes to one of two places, either the great evangelical megachurches of the suburbs or the historic churches of Atlanta. And for those of us voting here in Georgia, on the ballot this year for Senate is the pastor of the historic Ebenezer Baptist Church in downtown Atlanta, where Martin Luther King and Martin Luther King Jr. served as pastors uh, in the 40s and 50s, right? Or 50s and 60s, they were there. And some people are yeah. worried about this pastor as a politician idea. Well, as we think about, you know, kind of Gushy's greatest hits, uh, and as I look back on my career, I, I my first book uh, on politics was, was an edited book called Christians and Politics Beyond the Culture Wars, and that was in 2000. And the hope of that naive little book was that, um, that evangelical Christians could think beyond culture wars terms, and by that I meant, you know, left-right binaries with a fixation on abortion and uh, homosexuality at the time, and could have a holistic uh, policy agenda. Um, and then I, I came back in 2008 um, with a book proposing that, that, there was, um, that there was an evangelical center that, uh, that is where I located myself, and that was a more satisfactory place than the Christian right or the far left. Um, but I would say after 2016, the center did not hold. Um, and the, the white Christian evangelical world went, went with Trump to the right and to whatever Trumpism is. And the left, uh, and center, I think essentially got pushed out or, uh, in many ways have abandoned evangelicalism. So there's that whole story of, what has happened to white evangelical uh, political engagement, which has exercised a lot of my career um, in articles and, and in books. I didn't even mention everything that I've done in that area. But, um, but you know, if you, if you kind of go local and located in the South, um, it is interesting that we have the pastor of Ebenezer Baptist Church, who at this moment, who is a friend of ours, full disclosure, Union Seminary graduate, um, uh, I have his cell phone, you know, in my phone. We're that kind of, we're that kind mm -hmm. of friend, and um, and he looks to me like he's going to be the Democrat against one of those two Republicans who will make it to the runoff in January, and who knows, may determine whether the the Senate is controlled by the Democrats or the Republicans. Um, he's not the first black pastor to uh, seek and to or to win a political office. Um, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Uh, was a pastor and son of a pastor up in Harlem, and he he was a he became a leading politician, and uh, 
And there have been numerous examples like this. I think that, I remember when 1988 it was, I believe uh, Jesse Jackson ran for president, made a fairly credible run Mm -hmm. for president. Um, And on the other side, Pat Robertson, good old Pat, was running for president and made a fairly credible run for president that year. That was that Um, the same time? It was at the same time. Pat Robertson, run Jesse, run, were going on at the same time. Well, they were. Oh my um, god! <laughs> I need to go. There's got to be a book about that somewhere, but it should be a movie. It'd be a comedy, uh, and I would watch it. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I, I'll never forget that year. Um, I've so revealed my youth. <laughs> you have revealed. You have revealed my age. So there you go. Um, maybe an entry point is to say that the history of oppression of African Americans. Um, is embodied in the fact and kind of exemplified in the fact that um, for the longest time, the only institution in which African-Americans had full control of their own destiny was the local black congregation. Right. And the pastors of those congregations, often, if they were interested in it, even if they weren't, sometimes played the role of community leaders, advocates, protectors um, in the broader society in the context of of, uh, Jim Crow and segregation. um, The black pastor often was the one who would go down to the courthouse to to try to defend the interests of a member uh, or of the community as a whole uh, who would have who would protest and appeal for more justice, for uh, an end to lynching, uh, for more voting rights or the enforcement of the voting rights that were supposedly there. Um, right. The, the, that position yeah. of the, the African-American pastor has always been political because it's been that focused location of, like you said, it's the holdout. The church was the only place. Yeah. So, um, not every African-American pastor has wanted that role, and some have, have thought it was a violation of like the, the ministerial calling, but there's definitely been a strand all, all along uh, and, uh, that is understood that it's impossible not to occupy that role if one would be a shepherd of the sheep in the African-American community. Um, uh, once, uh, beginning in the 40s and 50s, um, once there became more avenues for African-Americans to, um, to have a shot at leadership, like in the law and in higher education and in politics uh, outside of the church um, and in business um, and so on. I mean, there always were um, leaders in a segregated black community, but once segregation began to shake a little bit, um, you had people like Thurgood Marshall and, and other voices mm-hmm. uh, who, could, who, who could also speak on behalf of African-American rights and dignity and needs. But, um, but for uh, Raphael Warnock, with a Ph.D. in theology but a deep interest in social ethics, um, representing um, the kind of social justice strand uh, of Christianity um, as, as historically embedded in the African-American prophetic church tradition, um, I, I, I think it's, it's beautiful to see. I have supported him and do support him. 
Um, but I acknowledge that I'm much more ambivalent when white pastors try to play the same role. Um, and maybe that's me being unfair, but I think, I think it's because, um, of the historic differences in the communities. Um, I do think that once a pastor decides that they're running for office, they are, they are occupying a different role. And, um, and there's, there should be like a kind of a toggle switch that says, um, I am not running for office as a man of the cloth. I am running for office as a, as a political candidate to be compared to other political candidates, my platform, my character, my vision. And um, they don't run as an official designate or delegate of the church. They come from a tradition. They bring the, the, the tradition, uh, you might say the inheritance of the tradition, into the candidacy. But, um, but in a sense, I mean, if they win, especially somebody like Raphael Warnock is going to be leaving the pastor behind to fulfill a different vocation. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's at least how I think of the bifurcation. Um, and in general, I think that pastors who are not running for office and who are attempting to shepherd flocks have a different set of responsibilities. They include speaking to social justice and social ethics, but, um, but definitely other responsibilities like preaching and pastoral care and church administration and strategic visioning for the church. And in other words, the things you want a local church pastor to do. And I've seen too many pastors not really leave the pastoral role, but kind of allow the politics to swallow up the pastoral role so that that's really all that they do. And if that's the case, then I think it's time for them to consider a vocational change as well. So for someone... So I I, I always love stories of, you know, the classic Mr. Smith goes to Washington. What, what do we... If we send Reverend Smith to Washington, how much of his faith should he be taking with him into his congressional office? Um, at one level, I want to say that Reverend Smith becomes Mr. Smith mm. the day the day that he or 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 she takes the oath of office. Um. They, this is the built-in tension between church and state, right? Um, between uh, religious calling and state service. I mean, it's so interesting the way it's symbolized. You put your hand on the Bible. President, uh, usually the other people who take oaths, they put their hand on the Bible or their sacred book, but they don't pledge allegiance to the Bible as we used to do in Christian schools, right? I mm-hmm. pledge allegiance to the Bible. What they pledge a to do and the is Christian flag, uh huh, right, <laughs> right, Lord. What, uh, what they pledge to do is to faithfully execute the laws of the land to protect and uphold the Constitution. And, um, and that is appropriate in a constitutionally 
a constitutional republic. Now, I would say that if we have a holistic understanding of the human person, whatever values have shaped this person, they bring with them. Um, and those values, in many, many, many cases, have been positively affected by their religious formation. So, um, so if they understand love of neighbor and care for the poor and um, concern for the common good um, and a commitment to social justice and human dignity, if that comes out of their religious tradition and is an ironclad commitment for them, those kinds of things are going to be brought with them. And, and I think it's appropriate for candidates to say that and to bring that um, into the public arena in, uh, insofar as such values can be aligned with constitutional responsibilities. Um, I do think that, that the tension never goes away when specific teachings of churches that people are loyal to conflict with the current law of the land. And that's problematic, like on the death penalty and abortion for a lot of Christians who go into politics or into the judiciary, mm -hmm. that's a problem. Even, even if you're, if you're uh, an executive officer in a state or if you're the president, you are ordering armed force on a periodic basis. And you're, you're the ultimate, ultimately responsible for armed um, police or military forces. Uh, for a lot of Christians, that's a deal breaker right there. They could never be in that role because they don't believe in violence. Mm -hmm. They don't believe that they can support it. Yeah, pacifists you know? can't be president. They should, yeah, it's not conceivable, really, right? Um, peacemakers can be presidents, but pacifists, um, and you know, that's that argument goes back to the beginning of to the beginning of Christianity. Um, so, you know, we, we have a very seriously Catholic judge who's about to be confirmed to the Supreme Court. And it'd be very interesting to see what she does when she's asked to deal with a death penalty case, for example, just to go there first, because Catholic doctrine is now officially anti death penalty. Um, so and she has said that I mean She's a very serious Catholic, but of course, so are several other Catholics who are on the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. um, so, ha so how they do that dance of um, um, navigating, navigating binding doctrine in constitutional law, well, I, either you recuse saying, I am so bound to my church that I cannot rule on this, but if that were to happen very often, then in a sense, that person should not be in that role because they're unable to function in it. Right. Do, right. do justices abstain? You can. You can. Yeah. Uh, it would normally be re recusing based on, right. like, I have pers personal interest in this case or, um, you know, or I have a conflict of interest because of a family member who's involved in this particular litigation or something like that, right? Right. Um, but rarely, uh, I can't think of any examples of a justice, including the very committed Catholic ones, abstaining from cases in which the doctrine of the church uh, requires a certain position. You know, um, and, and of course, on the on the liberal side, you have 
Catholics like Biden, who, uh, you know, his politics is pro-choice, his church is, is pro-life, and uh, who, um, who just stands in contradiction to that as part of their platform. Yeah, and, and he's articulated as such. He's he said things like, uh, "Personally, I, I'm he, I I can't quote him at the moment, but he said things like, personally, I am not for abortion, but politically, this is what needs to be.' Which that that's a hard place to stand. It is, um, and you know, it, it's about. Partly it's about um, one's judgment as to what the law should be in a pluralistic society of 330 million people. And yeah, kind of mundane considerations like if you ban abortion, what happens to the demand for abortion, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you 700,000 people got abortions last year, I think, I think that's the number. No, far fewer than it used to be, but say 700,000. If, the, if abortion were to be outlawed tomorrow, what happens to the 700,000 people next year who want an abortion? You know, and so enforceability became very clear as a problem with prohibition, right? Uh, you know, the high water mark of people bringing their faith into politics, we're going to ban the consumption and sale of alcohol. Um, and it didn't work. And they had to, it, it got, uh, it, was, it, it was a constitutional amendment and, what, like 1918, 19? No, 1920, I think it was, and it was gone by 1933, um, partly because it was unenforceable. So if law is not enforceable, it's bad law, so one can make just simply an enforceability argument about abortion. Yeah. Um, It's just bad law. And these are all all issues that really matter to, to our tradition as Baptists. We've always been particularly concerned in protection from the state and religious freedom in general what what's been your as a baptist thinker what what's been your trajectory and your career of interacting with these subjects um well partly along the way i wished i I had gone to law school um and gotten the law degree to be able to comment authoritatively on these church state boundary cases um because by the way, these religious liberty and church-state boundary cases are not going away. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to anybody who's listening, who's considering um, uh, considering options, because you're young enough to have options in front of you, a lot of them, I would say, if you have an interest in church-state, religious liberty, uh, these kind of in- intersections, you might consider getting a law and a theology degree. Um. So too late for you, Jeremy, too late yep. for me, but there you go, right? Um, but but I would say that I have thought to, at one point I was seeking to help evangelical Christians access what you might call the social teaching tradition of Christianity, the political ethics tradition of Christianity, so that our political engagement was not just Partisan or reactive, but instead drew from the well of the best of our tradition, and and I have done that again in after evangelicalism in the chapter on politics. So here are some principles for healthy Christian political engagement. Um, I have also 
successfully and unsuccessfully sought to call white evangelicals from getting married, call them away from getting married to the Republican Party. Um, and to retain more political independence. And I certainly begged them not to get married to Donald Trump. Um, and I feel that in both cases, that was a fail. But but that, that white evangelicalism is bearing a tremendous cost for having, having uh, gone down that path. Um, I do think that um, zealotry on the right and on the left of we have the right convictions and we think everybody should live by them is a problem for us being able to live together in society. And so um, I wrote fairly recently that like if the Democrats win, they win the Senate, they win the House, they win the presidency, um, they're going to want to be careful not to um, terrorize conservative Christian Americans who feel that or already are afraid that their values are going to be hunted down and destroyed. Right. You know, they'll um, be purged from that, social media and cut off from. Right. Right. Now, some of that is paranoia, but, but, you know, um, the fear that, for example, um, Christian colleges will be stripped of their tax status because they're not taking the, the Democratic Party line on social issues. Right. right. Churches um, will that don't do uh, same-sex weddings will lose their status. Right. Um, that those are religious liberty questions, and um, and uh, a wise Democratic leadership is going to is going to uh, not terrorize people who already feel afraid that their values are marginal and are at risk of being snuffed out by the power of the state. Right. Right. Um, so we are not going to find shared values anytime soon. So we need to detox our politics to the extent that when Democrats win, Republicans don't feel like they're going to have to leave the country or go underground. And Republicans win, Democrats don't feel like they have to leave the country or go underground maximalist politics of victory, triumph, and smashing the enemy, uh, it, it, we just can't have. And um, one of the reasons I think Joe Biden will probably win is because he has not communicated that spirit. It's been more of a, a regular guy vibe, you know, and, and this country's for everybody and, you know, that kind of thing. That's, that's why I think he'll probably win. Um, so I do think that it would be good Courts were not always the, the, the place of last resort for us to resolve every one of our differences about these issues. That's also put too much pressure on the Supreme Court. And that's why every Supreme Court justice is like some huge celebrity. Right. And every, every death is like a state event, you know. Um, I'd like to see the legislative branch work better and uh, resolve some of these questions. Uh, and then if public opinion changes, write some new laws and and in other words, let the people decide instead of the judges. I think that would be healthier for us. Yeah, there's so but there's would, so much fear about these when, when we have a new justice come in because more and more we see them sort of legislating from the bench instead of just serving the role of the judiciary. Um, because uh, because we don't seem to be able to make any laws, you know, uh, you know, 
<clears throat> there's like this gridlock um, or ineffectiveness of the legislature. I was actually um, having this conversation uh, earlier today here in my in my church office. So I'm, uh, I, was, <laughs> I quoted the political hero of my youth um, in saying that if I'm elected as president, I will veto everything the first time it comes to my desk. Um, <laughs> I will make them keep fighting about it so that the legislature does their job. How interesting. Um, so I, I think I think there's a lot that's broken in our politics. But can I say one other thing? Um, I, I feel like the fever pitch of our politics um, is unhealthy for everybody. I need some normal. We all need some normal. Mm-hmm. And, and so um, I think we need some structural reforms at the national level um, just to kind of make the government work better. Need to need them to show that they know how to do things like pass a budget and do good laws and and deliberate about the common good and and all of that. But if that could happen, especially if that could happen, um, I would like Christians to remember that our faith is not just about politics. It's about Jesus. It's about the reign of God. It's about the uh, healthy healthy churches. It's about doctrinal uh you know doctrinal clarity it's about a personal morality it's about loving our neighbors you know um it's about being the best people we can be the best versions of ourselves i think that it's like religion is being reduced to politics right theology theology is losing its sway um when I just read, it's so funny, like these days, one of the most refreshing things I do is like when I occasionally pick up a book that's just about theology and I read some theology. <laughs> How about that? A little Christology, a little soteriology, a little ecclesiology, mm-hmm. a little pneumatology. That's like In I said words, at the so. beginning of this episode, I feel as a pastor, like I have to address this every single week and it's it's exhausting. <laughs> this, this past it, Sunday, it, uh, a line in the sermon was something... Like, uh, the most important thing about you is not how you vote. Right. I preached a sermon just a little while ago that was saying that politics should not be the most important thing in your life. It shouldn't... You're a radical. You're a radical, Jeremy. The president's Twitter feed should not be the first thing you read when you wake up. Right. Um, so at this moment, maybe we'll wrap it up this way, um, I would call Christians to remember our first love, um, to remember what it means to think about being followers of Jesus, um, telling people about God's love, um, attempting to live sanctified lives, thinking seriously about uh, doctrine so that we can be clear in our communication and in our living, um, trying to uh, love our neighbors as ourselves and love God with everything that we have deepening our spiritual lives, deepening our prayer lives. Politics has a place in a holistic, well-lived Christian life, but it's not as big a place as it has occupied recently where everything is the apocalyptic battle mm-hmm. of good and evil as played out on Twitter on a daily basis, right? Uh, it was even on the 700 Club this past week. Um, is that who, Who's that? Is that Robertson? That's Robertson. Yeah, uh-huh. Robertson said uh, that the... 
that President Trump will be reelected and that will kick off the end. A lot of people would agree in a very different way. With yeah, that, right. Know, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> so, so that's what I would say. Uh, I personally um, hope to do a little bit more writing of uh, of of a kind of a, um, spiritual, theological, devotional, uh, ethical formation type. Um, and like when my next book is about Job. And uh, the book after that is going to be about the Holocaust, which I know we're going to take up next. But right, that's I'm, where we will go next is the Holocaust. Yeah, I'm, I'm exhausted from the politics. Of course, I think a lot of people are. Election years do that. But, but it's been a fever pitch for four years at least. Um, and in some ways, it's been a fever pitch since the moral majority really got itself going in the, in the mid-70s. So for me, I remember it all. That's 45 years. And I think... Um, I think it's gotten out of control, and I'm hoping um, for something more like normal. Um, so that's where I hope things are next for me and maybe for all of us. I spun around in my desk chair and grabbed off the shelf a copy of After Evangelicalism, The Path to a New Christianity by David P. Geshe. It has one bookmark sticking out of the top of it. I opened to that page. It is page 150, the takeaways from the chapter on politics. I'd like to close us with the uh, seven commitments you offer. How's that okay. sound? Do it. <clears throat> the the last words of the politics chapter of this book say: Seven commitments of a post-evangelical politics are proposed. A distinctive Christian identity. Action based on hope and not fear. Critical distance from earthly powers. Grounding in the broad Christian social teaching tradition that one we really we got to do better church a global perspective orientation towards serving god's kingdom and the common good and efforts to practice what we preach wouldn't that be nice sounds pretty good who wrote that a certain david p gushy (laughs) available everywhere all right thank you david thank you jeremy We will be back um, on our next episode to talk about the Holocaust and the righteous Gentiles of the Holocaust, the the righteous among the nations. So thank you for joining us today. This has been the Kingdom Ethics Podcast coming out of the Center for Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. We're we're glad you're here. We want to hear from you. Shoot us an email. We're on Facebook. You can find David and I at our respective websites. That's davidpgushy.com and revjeremyhall.com to find the rest of our work. There's a catalog for each of us, and we'd love to interact with you on any and all of that. Thank you, and we'll see you soon.